You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. One of the things we like to do here at Whitefields, we like to study through books of the Bible. And the reason we do that uh, as a great majority of our teaching is that we want to hear from God. We want to let God speak to us. We find that this is a way in which we can kind of come to God and let him speak to us through his word on his terms. And so we like to study through whole books of the Bible. Right now we're studying through the books of 1 and 2 Kings. And as we study these books, you know, a lot of what we're reading, we're reading about the failures and the shortcomings of earthly kings and human kingdoms. But as we do that, our goal isn't just to say, wow, those guys really messed up. No, our goal is that as we do this, it would stir up within us a desire for and a longing for the true king and the ultimate kingdom, Jesus Christ and the eternal kingdom, which is coming. And so the title of today's message as we study through this series is The Big Big if, the big if. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we want to be receptive to your word. We ask that, Lord, as we hear it, that you'd help us to understand it. But Lord, also do a transforming work in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives as we study your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, you know, the word if is a very important word. It's a word that communicates opportunity but it also communicates contingency. So there's an opportunity, but there's also a contingency. There's a possibility, but that possibility is not an inevitability. Here in 1 Kings chapter 12, and and up till now in this book, we've been looking at one person. Now we're going to look at a second person. And with both of these people, we're going to see that they were given promises by God, and yet those promises contained a big if. They contained this word if. Those two men were Solomon and Jeroboam. And even though they were given golden opportunities, they failed to take hold of them. And these stories are important for us to see. And here's why. Because God makes us a lot of promises in the Bible. As you read through the Bible, God makes a lot of promises to us as well, which also contain the word if. Right? It's an opportunity but there's a contingency. There's a possibility, but not an inevitability. So how do we make sure that we take hold of those promises rather than missing out on them like Solomon did and like Jeroboam did? That's what we'll be talking about today in our study here in 1 Kings chapter 12. And here's what we're going to see. We could summarize the, the point of this like this. As the kingdom was divided, Jeroboam's golden opportunity and golden failure Point us to ourselves and to Jesus. Okay, that sentence right there, you want to take that, write that down, maybe memorize it. Here's what we've been doing the past several weeks. It's just something we've been trying out for about the last five, six weeks. And that is that we summarize the message in a sentence and we'll walk through that sentence throughout the message. And my goal with that is this. When you walk away today and somebody asks you, hey, what did you guys talk about at church? You'll be like, actually, this is what we talked about at church. As the kingdom was divided, Jeroboam's golden opportunity and golden failure point us to ourselves and to Jesus. So that's the idea with what we're doing. Now let's walk through that sentence. As the kingdom was divided. So that's the first part, as the kingdom was divided. So far in 1 Kings, we have looked at one king, King Solomon, for the first 11 chapters. Under Solomon's leadership, Israel experienced a golden age of peace and prosperity, uh, of wealth and of security. 
In our study, though, through these first 11 chapters, what we've seen is that God made a promise to Solomon, and he repeated that promise three times. Three times he repeated that promise, and here was the promise, that if, key word, if Solomon would give his heart completely to God, if Solomon would hold fast to God's word, then God would bless him and establish his kingdom and give him security and take care of him. It was a big if. And that if was a gateway into the wonderful things that God wanted to do for Solomon. But instead of giving his heart to the Lord, instead of holding fast to God's word, we saw that Solomon disregarded God's word. He had a divided heart and he eventually turned away from God completely and worshiped other gods. And as a result, here's what we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 11. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Today, we're going to meet that servant. His name is Jeroboam. Now, up until this point, the 12 tribes of Israel have been united in one kingdom. But now the kingdom is going to be divided. The golden age of Israel as a world power is coming to an end right now. Judah and Benjamin, these are the two southern tribes around the city of Jerusalem. Judah and Benjamin are going to become the kingdom of Judah. The northern ten tribes, the remaining ten tribes in the north of Jerusalem, they're going to become known as the kingdom of Israel. But it's worth stopping at this point and asking the question, why did Solomon do this? Why would he do something like this? God offered him, he extended to him this incredible offer, all of these blessings. And all Solomon had to do was take God's hand and walk with him. All Solomon had to do was give his heart, entrust his life over to God. And yet, instead of doing that, Solomon chose instead the way of destruction rather than the way of blessing, a way that ends up ruining his legacy and ultimately destroying his soul. It's as if someone were to say to you, hey, here's a check for a billion dollars, or you could drink some antifreeze and die. And you're like, let me think about it. I'm going to choose the antifreeze, right? Hand me that antifreeze. Hold my beer, hand me the antifreeze, right? And you're like, well, why would anybody do that? And the truth is, a lot of people do that exact same thing today. Maybe there are even some of you in this room right now, or some watching online, and you're at risk of doing that exact same thing. Maybe you've been offered, you know, you've been offered this incredible opportunity from God, this check worth a billion dollars, the jackpot, right? Blessings, love, acceptance, peace, hope, joy, strength, calling, fulfillment, and life. And yet you're seriously thinking about passing it all up so that you can drink the antifreeze and die. And the question is, why would anybody do that? Why, why do we have this temptation to do that? Because from an objective, like logical perspective, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that we would pass up all these riches of blessing and instead choose a way of destruction. So what is it within us that causes us to be tempted to do that? What are the lies that we are prone to believe that cause us to make the mistakes that Solomon did and that Jeroboam did? That's what we're going to be talking about today. But look, Solomon wasn't the only one who was given a promise that contained the word if. There was another man too, and that's Jeroboam. And he's the one we're here to talk about today. That brings us to the second part of our sentence, which is this. As the kingdom is divided, Jeroboam's golden opportunity. So let's talk about that. We're introduced to Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 26. 
And we're told that Jeroboam opposed King Solomon. There was a kind of rebellion that took place under Jeroboam against Solomon. And we kind of have some insight into what that is, both from the text and from, from uh, outside of the Bible Jewish history. Verse 28 tells us that Jeroboam was in charge of the forced labor there in Israel. And they were doing these building projects, right? It says in verse 27 that the reason why Jeroboam opposed and led this rebellion against Solomon had to do with the building of the fortifications around the city of Jerusalem. And, and Jewish tradition tells us a little bit more about this. It tells us that Jeroboam essentially led like a workers' revolt against Solomon because Solomon was overworking and treating the workers unfairly during this building project. And so, of course, Solomon doesn't like the fact that Jeroboam leads this revolt against him and speaks out against him. And so it says in verse 29 there that he tried to kill uh, Jeroboam, and Jeroboam was able to flee to Egypt until uh, Solomon died. Here's what's so interesting. In verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 29, it tells us that God sent a prophet named Ahijah to give a message to Jeroboam as he was on his way down to Egypt, fleeing from Solomon. And the way Ahijah gave this message was really interesting. One of the things you'll notice as we get into First and Second Kings, we're entering the time of the prophets. So when you read about the prophets, prophet books, a lot of them took place during the time of the kings. And one of the things you'll notice about the prophets of Israel is that they like to give their message not just by like telling you stuff, but they would often act it out in like a dramatic fashion. And that's what Ahijah does here is that Ahijah the prophet, he goes and he finds Jeroboam and he goes to him and he's wearing this robe as his clothes, right? So he takes off his clothes, his robe that he's wearing. He tears it up into 12 pieces and then he hands Jeroboam 10 pieces and he says, God is giving you 10 of the tribes of Israel and that'll be yours. You'll be king over them, but the other two you won't. And, you know, if I'm Jeroboam, I'm probably thinking, like, listen, cool. Like, I get it. Like, I also understood it when you just said it, right? Like, you didn't have to take off your clothes and rip them into pieces. And now you have to walk home in your underwear, right? Like, this is... Okay, but we get it, right? It's very vivid. Tearing the kingdom, 12 parts, 10 parts going to Jeroboam, two parts staying with Solomon's descendants. It says in verses 37 and 38, God makes this incredible promise to Jeroboam. And the promise is this, you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Now think about what God is saying to him, because this is really profound. It's really interesting. God is essentially inviting Jeroboam to become the next David, the next David-like figure in Israel. Jeroboam and David actually have a lot in common, don't they? They both followed after disobedient kings. They were both from outside of the royal family line. They were both hunted by the king they were chosen to replace, who tried to kill them. Jeroboam has a golden opportunity. God is inviting him to become the second David, David number two. And God is promising to protect him and bless him and make his kingdom prosperous and strong and give him a dynasty. He's hit the jackpot. But this promise contains a big if. A big if, doesn't it? Notice he says, if you will listen to all that I command you, if you will walk in my ways, if you will do what's right in my eyes, if you will keep my statutes and my commandments, then 
I will be with you and will build you a sure house like I did for David. Like Solomon and like, you, like for you and me, Jeroboam had a golden opportunity. Let's see what he did with it as we move through this sentence. As the kingdom was divided, Jeroboam's golden opportunity and his golden failure. What's a golden failure? Let's, let's talk about it. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1, we're introduced to Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon and the heir to the throne now that Solomon is dead. And so it says that Rehoboam, Solomon's son, went to Shechem. Why? To be coronated, right? To be crowned as king, to be officially instated as the king of Israel. Verse 2 tells us that when Jeroboam heard that Solomon had died and there was this ceremony to institute, you know, install Rehoboam as king, he came back from Egypt uh, to Israel so he can be ready now because he knows that God's going to open a door for him to become king. Verse 3, it tells us that after Rehoboam had been inaugurated as king, the people came to him with a request. Now, who are these people? Well, it says they came with Jeroboam. And it would seem that these people are the same people who were part of this rebellion, this workers' revolt that took place under Jeroboam against Solomon. Because look at what they say to him, what their request is. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. So they're not saying they won't serve him. They're just asking, please treat us better than Solomon treated us. Now, remember, Jeroboam had led an uprising against Solomon, an uprising of workers, laborers revolting against Solomon because of his unjust working conditions and principles. So what is Rehoboam going to do? Is he going to listen to the people and give them a break? Or... Is he going to be hard on them? We'll see what kind of leader he's going to be. Rehoboam says in verse 5, give me a few days to think about it. So he starts going around and, and getting some advice. Verse 6, he goes to the older men who were his father's advisors. And he says, what do you guys think I should do? And the older men say this in verse 7, if you will be a servant to this people and serve them and speak God, good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. They'll be faithful to you. They'll love you. This is really good advice. By the way, this is the kind of leadership that Jesus himself taught and modeled, that true leaders are servants, that leadership isn't about reigning over people and, and being over them, ruling them, but it is about getting under people and lifting them up. But Rehoboam doesn't take this advice. Look at verse 8. He abandoned the wise counsel of the older men, and he went to his bros. He went to his buddies, the guys he grew up with. And they're like, in verse 10, they say, you know what you should do? You should go back, and you should tell those people, you think my dad made your life hard? Well, I'm going to make you wish that you had never been born. Right? Rehoboam's friends tell him, you got to show those people that you're in charge. You can't look weak. You've got to show them. You've got to make them fear you in order for them to respect you. Now, this is really bad advice, right? But Rehoboam does exactly that. Verse 14, he goes to the people and he said, my father made your yoke heavy and I'm going to add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. I don't even know how you do that, but it sounds really horrible, right? Like, I don't want that. Now, this is really dumb advice that Rehoboam got. And he went for it. Like, he, he did it. Why would Rehoboam listen to this horrible advice? I'll tell you why. It's the same reason why Solomon passed up on God's blessings. It's the same reason that Jeroboam is going to pass up on God's blessings. The downfall of all of these men, it stems from the same root issue. And that issue is fear. 
We're going to talk about this more in a minute. But look at this. Rehoboam is afraid of appearing weak. And his fear leads him to make a very foolish decision. But look at, as we go on, though, before we get to that, let's look at what it says in verse 15. The king did not listen to the people, but this was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. Listen to that phrase. It was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. Now, this is interesting. Rehoboam chose to do this foolish thing. It was his choice, and yet God was somehow in control, orchestrating all of these events in order to bring about his plans. This is what we call the providence of God. This is what we call the invisible hand of God, which is at work in the world behind the scenes. And this is really good news for us, especially in turbulent times like the ones we live in today, because here's what it means. That above all of the chaos, above all of the bad decisions that people make, above all of the sins that people commit, God is sovereign. And he is providentially at work in the world, above all of these things, orchestrating and working out his purposes and fulfilling his word. And that's really good news. That's really encouraging. That fills us with confidence and comfort and encouragement, even in troubled times like we're living in right now. God is on the throne and we can trust in him. So verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, it tells us that the people rejected Rehoboam as their king and they broke away. And in verse 20, we read the 10 northern tribes made Jeroboam their king. Now, Rehoboam isn't going to take this lying down, right? He's not just going to say, okay, cool, you guys go ahead. No, he's prepared to fight. He's ready to start a civil war. Look at verse 21. He assembled an army of 180,000 soldiers. This is going to be a civil war. But verse 22, incredibly, perhaps the most miraculous part of this whole story, God sends a man named Shemaiah to Rehoboam and tells him, stop, don't do this. And surprisingly, Rehoboam listened. Now, that's weird because Rehoboam isn't real good at listening, apparently. And yet he listens. So this is amazing. But look, the kingdom was divided. It was divided successfully, and it was divided peacefully. Now Jeroboam is king, just as God said he would be. But the question is this. What is Jeroboam going to do with these great promises that God gave him? What is he going to do with these promises that God made to him? Well, let's find out. Look at verse 25. It says that Jeroboam built Shechem. Shechem was going to be Rehoboam's capital city, right, to rival Jerusalem. So the southern kingdom has Jerusalem, and he builds Shechem to be his shining capital city. But then he realized that's a problem because one thing to have a capital city, there's still a problem, and that is that the temple is in Jerusalem, which is in the other kingdom. And look at what it says in verse 27. Jeroboam thought to himself, if this people goes up to sacrifice at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So what does Jeroboam do? He's worried that if the people go down to Jerusalem, that their hearts will change, they'll turn, they won't feel the same about this whole thing that's gone on. So what does he do? Verse 28, Jeroboam made two calves of gold. I mean, come on. How cliche, right? Two calves of gold. This already happened before once. And he tells the people, Behold, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, which, by the way, is the exact same thing that they said when they built the first golden calf. This is crazy. Like, how come there's nobody who's, like, raising their hand in the back of the room, like, uh, 
didn't this happen before and it was bad and uh, maybe we shouldn't do this? Or maybe somebody did and then nobody listened to them. But Jeroboam, he's been king for like 15 minutes and he's already turned away from the Lord. He's already set up pagan altars and turned the people to idolatry. He set up one altar, it says, in Bethel, the other in Dan. Last year, our church, we took a trip to Israel, and we got to see the altar in Dan. It's still there to this day. If you come with us next time we go, whenever that's possible, you'll get to see it for yourself. And Jeroboam, he established, it says in the final verses of chapter 12, a priesthood, kind of like an anti-priesthood, right, a counter-priesthood um, to rival that in Jerusalem. He set up a priesthood, and he sets up feasts. And of course, his goal is that no one should go to Jerusalem anymore. He wants the people to not go there, not worship in the temple, because why? He considers it a threat to his political power. That's terrible. But look, you read this and you're like, doesn't Jeroboam remember? Doesn't he remember that the whole reason why God made him king was because Solomon built pagan altars and made himself an enemy of God? Like, did, did Jeroboam suddenly forget? God made Jeroboam some incredible promises. He had a golden opportunity, and he's straight up blowing it. Let's move on to the next part of our sentence, though, because here's the deal. As the kingdom is divided, Jeroboam's golden opportunity and golden failure, they point us to ourselves. They point us to ourselves. The common thread in all of these stories with Solomon, with Rehoboam, with Jeroboam, is that at the root of all of these foolish decisions is one thing, and that thing is fear. It's fear that leads these men to do these things in each case. Now, some fears are good, right? And you remember like in the 90s when everybody had those shirts on that said no fear? I was always like, I don't know if that's always a good idea to have no fear. Like, you should probably have some fear, right? Like, some fears are good. Like, for example, when my son was two years old, we used to live in Hungary, and we came and we were visiting family, and we went and visited the Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park. By the way, if you have a two-year-old, maybe just postpone that trip, because it's just not a good idea to go there with a two-year-old, because there are all these cliffs that are like 800 feet high. It's not an exaggeration. They're 800 feet high, straight vertical cliffs. And the only thing guarding you from falling off the cliff are these like wooden fences that are the perfect height for a two-year-old to walk under them, okay? So that's exactly what our son was doing. He was like running around. He was having a great time. And his mom and I, right, we're panicking. We're freaking out because he doesn't have a healthy fear of how dangerous this situation actually is. So he's running around, and then, you know, we grab him, and he's kicking and wiggling, and we're like, please understand. And of course, he's two years old, so we put him in the car, and that's how I saw the Black Canyon of the Gunnison was out the window of a car with a child fighting me. And so, um, you know, we, we wished he would have had a healthy fear. So sometimes fear is good. For example, if you're an electrician, it's good to have a healthy fear of what can happen if you set things up wrong. But there are other fears which are not healthy and which can actually lead you to make some really bad decisions. And this is why the book of Proverbs differentiates between the good fears and the bad fears, right? Some are good, some are bad. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. But it also says the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. Now, with all of these three men, 
we see that it was misplaced fear. That's the issue here. Misplaced fear led to their downfalls. Each of them lacked a healthy fear of the Lord. And instead, with Jeroboam, we see that he had a fear of losing control. With Rehoboam, he had a fear of appearing weak. With Solomon, he had a fear of missing out. These fears held them back from taking hold of God's promises and what God wanted to give them and what God offered them. And here's the thing. The same fears that held these men back from taking hold of God's promises to them, they are the same fears that hold us back many times, you and I, that threaten to hold us back from taking hold of God's promises to us. Right? The, these promises that God makes us, there are a lot of them, even in the New Testament, which contain the word if. Let me read some to you. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hey, 1 John 1 verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 2, Paul says, The gospel that I preach to you by which you are being saved, if you hold fast, uh, to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. Colossians chapter 1, 22 and 23 says this, Jesus has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if you indeed continue in the faith. What God offers us in Christ Jesus is something infinitely better, infinitely bigger than the golden promises, the golden opportunities that God offered to Solomon and Jeroboam. And yet, they also contain the word if. There's a response that is required on your behalf. There's an opportunity, but it's not an inevitability. There's a possibility, but there's a contingency. And the same misplaced fears that held these men back from taking hold of God's promises, God's blessings to them. Guys, oftentimes these are the same ones that we struggle with when it comes to, these are the things that hold us back, that threaten to hold us back from taking hold of God's promises to us as well. Let's, let's think about it. With Solomon, it was the fear of missing out, the fear of missing out. God had told the kings, remember, in, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, he had told the kings, here are the things which you are not allowed to do. And there were three things. And, and as we talked about the last couple of weeks, it's almost like Solomon looked at that list and he said, these are actually some pretty good ideas, right? Like, don't accumulate a lot of gold. Well, that sounds like a pretty good idea, actually. Don't marry a lot of women. Well, actually, maybe I'll do that. Don't amass a large army. Oh, that's also a good idea, right? So he was just going down, circling things, you know, and doing those things. And he knew that God said not to do these things, but he did them anyway. And you get the impression from reading it that the reason he did those things, in spite of knowing that God didn't want him to, was because he was afraid that if he gave his whole life to the Lord, he would miss out. He would miss out on things which he was pretty sure were pretty awesome. And maybe there are some of you, and that's exactly where you're at. You are afraid of giving your whole heart, your whole life over to God because you're afraid that if you do, you will miss out on something that you would enjoy, some good stuff. I'll tell you what, that was me when I was younger. There was a point in my life where not only did I believe that the stuff the Bible said about Jesus was true, 
But I actually knew that God was calling me to give my life and my heart completely over to him, to surrender my life to him. But I was really hesitant to do it. I pushed back. Why? Because I was afraid that if I gave my life to the Lord, I would miss out on all kinds of good stuff. And I'm not sure what I was afraid of missing out, maybe parties or relationships or experiences. I was afraid that if I really gave my life to the Lord, my life would just be boring forever and I'd have to listen to Caleb, right? Like, no offense, but Caleb, uh, I was like, I don't want to have to listen to that. Now, if you like it, then good for you. It's not my favorite, but that's how it is, right? So this is one of the, one of the lies that Satan tells people, by the way, is if you follow God, you're going to miss out. You follow God, you're going to miss out. This is the same lie that he told Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember that? If you obey God, then you're going to miss out on a bunch of really cool stuff. You know, and he said, basically, the serpent said to them, God, I guess, doesn't care about you. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't want you to have something that would be good for you. And who would want to follow a God like that? But of course, that was a complete lie. And it was a lie in Solomon's case as well, because Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes about how he disobeyed God because he thought that if he disobeyed God, those things would lead to fulfillment and happiness in his life, but they didn't. And he discovered that all the parties and all the money, it was all empty and it all left him empty. And in the end, he came to the point where he says, the only thing that gives any sense of fulfillment and lasting life is to love God and to serve him. And I'll tell you what, that was true in my life as well. You know, at, when I gave my life fully over to the Lord, I was so afraid that if I did that, it would lead to me having a small life and missing out on things. But just the opposite happened. It was almost like that is when the opportunities and the doors for excitement and adventure, fulfillment and joy came into my life. And I'm absolutely convinced that if you really give your life to the Lord and you're really led by the Spirit, that is the most exciting, fulfilling life you can possibly live. The fear of missing out, this is a lie that Satan uses to keep us from giving our lives wholly over to God. Now let's look at Rehoboam. He had a fear too, the fear of looking weak. Maybe some of you, that's what holds you back from really giving your life wholly over to God. You're afraid of looking weak. I had an older man tell me once, he said, you know, religion is for women and the weak. Listen, if you want to know how strong you are, how autonomous you are, how you know, independent you are, just try holding your breath for as long as you can and let me know how that goes. Because here's the deal. None of us are self-reliant. Every single moment of your life, you are completely dependent on forces that you have absolutely no control over. And being afraid of looking weak, that's a sign of insecurity. That's what we see with Rehoboam. He is weak. That's why he's afraid of looking weak. The Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It takes strength, in other words, to bow your knee before God. And then there's Jeroboam. The reason he fails to take hold of God's promises is because of the fear of losing control over his life. He's afraid that if he gives up control, he's going to lose something. Yesterday, I had a, a bird flew into my garage. I have a two-car garage, and this bird flew in uh, while the door was open, but then it got stuck in my garage because it kept wanting to fly up, and it didn't understand that to get out of the garage, I actually had to go under the garage door. So it kept flying up, and it was hitting its head on the wall, and it was really, really sad. And, you know, we were in there, and the bird was panicking and making this tweeting noise. It was in distress, and we were trying to direct it and trying to, like, coach it, you know, to go under the door, but it wouldn't do it. And so, so we realized we're going to have to cast this bird so that we can set it free. But this bird really didn't want to be caught, right? Like it was terrified of being caught. 
And a few times I was actually able to cover it with different things, but it would find a way to escape. It was doing everything it could to not be captured because it was afraid of being constrained and what? Losing its freedom. The only problem was this bird's freedom was only an illusion. It wasn't really free. It was trapped in this garage, in a hot garage at that. And if it were to stay in that garage and I didn't capture it, surely it would die. That garage would ruin it. In fact, at one point, I thought the bird had flown out and I couldn't find it for a while. So we ended up closing the garage door and leaving to do some things and coming back a few hours later only to find it was still there. During that time, you can imagine the bird was probably like, finally, I am free. That guy's leaving me alone now. But the truth is, again, he wasn't free at all. That bird wasn't free at all. If he didn't get out of that garage, he would die. And the only way to get out of the garage was to be in my clutches, which was what he was exactly afraid of, right? So I ended up getting this net, and I captured the bird, and I took it outside, and I set it free. See, when that bird saw that net descending upon it and realized it was in the net, what do you think the bird was thinking? It was thinking, oh, no. I've been constrained. I have lost my freedom. But in reality, I was introducing that bird to the freedom it really needed, a greater freedom, much bigger freedom. You know what? A lot of us are like that little bird. We're so afraid of giving God our full trust, really giving our lives over to him, of him closing his hands upon us, right? Putting our lives wholly in his hands um, in every area because we're afraid that if we do so, we'll lose our freedom, Maybe some of you, you feel like that bird in my garage. God's pursuing you, trying to take hold of you, and you're fluttering away. You're avoiding him. Why? Because you're afraid of losing control over your life. But the truth is, like that bird, until you give your life fully into God's hands, you will never be free. You will never be free. Uh, apart from giving your life into God's hands, you will be trapped in something that will ultimately destroy you. And the reason God wants to the reason God wants you to give your life to him is so that he can set you free and give you something so much better. Look at the history of Israel. They were slaves in Egypt, but God came and set them free. And as they followed him, that he led them into freedom and the promised land. But now here in 1 Kings, we see them turning away, turning away from God, back to idols. And I don't want to ruin the story for you, but by the time we get to the end of 2 Kings, they're going to be slaves and captives once again. Do you see it's showing us two different trajectories, two different ways to go and where they lead. The one leads to freedom. The other leads to bondage. The one leads to blessing. The other to curse. The one leads to joy. The other to sorrow. And it all hinges on this big if. Obviously, the stakes are pretty high. So how can we be sure that we don't miss these great promises that God offers us, these opportunities that God offers and, and extends to us like Solomon did and like Jeroboam did? Well, that brings us to our, our final point in the sentence. As the kingdom was divided, Jeroboam's golden opportunity and golden failure point us to ourselves, but more importantly, they point us to Jesus. You know, one of the big questions that people have when they read the Bible is, is a relationship with God, is it conditional or is it unconditional, right? Are God's blessings in our lives, are they given conditionally or are they given unconditionally, right? And the answer is this. Yes. Yes, they are. And, and the, the reason is this. A covenant is conditional by nature. There are certain requirements. And yet, without exception, all of us have failed to meet the conditions of the covenant, 
None of us have lived up perfectly to God's standards or what God requires of us. But here's the good news. By the way, the word gospel, it means literally good news. Here's the good news, the gospel. Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the covenant for you on your behalf in his life and death and resurrection. And because Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of the conditions that God required, because he did that for you on your behalf, now in him, God can accept you and bless you unconditionally. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done for us what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Note, not by us, in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Notice what it says there. What we could not do for ourselves, God has done for us. Because of what Jesus did, the righteous requirements of the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, they are now fulfilled in us, not by us, but in us, because Jesus' perfect record, his righteousness, his accomplishments have been imputed to us. They've been credited to our account. That is really good news. And the way to make sure that you don't miss out on the promises and the blessings that God is extending and offering to you the way to do that, here's how. Put your trust, your faith, your confidence, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. And here's what's so great. God, by his grace, will give you the strength and the ability to do all the things he's calling you to do, even including trusting in him and obeying him. So rather than being held back by fear, whether it's the fear of missing out, whether it's the fear of looking weak, whether it's the fear of losing control, Instead, entrust yourself wholly to the one who gave himself for you to do for you what you could never do for yourself and to lead you into true freedom and joy and peace. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.